I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. What do doctors know about cannabis? For the most part, not very much. Stuck as they are in the world of government regulations and medical research, there's little hard evidence for them to go on. And since they don't learn about the health and wellness potential of cannabis in medical school, they tend to ignore it as a possible health aid for patients suffering from various ailments, migraines, to pain management, to stress relief, and as we continue to discover potentially lots of other conditions. One glaring exception to this rule is Dr. Peter Grinspoon of Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital. Grinspoon's expertise goes back some 50 years, thanks to the pioneering work of his father, Lester Grinspoon, who also taught at Harvard Medical School and became famous for writing Marijuana Reconsidered, a book that disputed many of the popular beliefs around cannabis and its effects. Peter Grinspoon grew up in a home where Allen Ginsberg and Carl Sagan would hang out smoking joints and philosophizing on the nature of the universe. But all was not rosy for Peter. While interning, he sampled Vicodin and got strung out on opiates. His addiction lasted until the police showed up at his office one day to arrest him for writing bad prescriptions. Flash forward to today. He's back continuing his father's work, speaking out on cannabis, health, and wellness. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. Today, my guest is Peter Grinspoon. Peter is an internist. He's a doctor at the Massachusetts General Hospital and an instructor at Harvard Medical School, an expert in the fields of physicians and addiction and medical cannabis. His 2016 book, Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction, was the first memoir by a physician to confess to and describe recovery from an opiate addiction. So that's a quite a big tale right there to begin with. So you were able to not only overcome it, but also get back into practice and continue your life's work, which is really good news for everybody concerned, I'm sure. Uh, so let's uh, yeah, let's just start with that. I mean, the whole story of a doctor confronts his addiction. Uh, you also come from a distinguished medical family history, and I'm sure that didn't play well in, in that world and in, in your family's world as well. So how, how did that happen? How did you get involved in, in addiction? Well, it's really interesting. I've always been sort of like uh, interested in experiencing different things. And, you know, among those were always drugs. I've always wanted to try different things. And I never had a problem until I tried opiates, you know, and the first time in medical school, I tried Vicodin. I just became so euphoric. I can't even describe how euphoric I came. And unfortunately, I spent the next 10 years trying to recreate that initial euphoria really took over my life. You know, I've been to physician support group meetings where people have said, I had 
had my first drink at age 14 and never stopped drinking at that point. And, you know, alcohol doesn't do very much for me at all. And I've been to other groups where people have said, you know, I had Vicodin after my C-section and it didn't make me euphoric. I don't know how you could have possibly got addicted to Vicodin. So I think it's person specific and that we, those of us who get addicted have a certain vulnerability to a particular substance at times. Because again, I had experimented with drugs across the board, just, you know, in college, not, not really as much as a doctor, but in college and nothing really attracted me that much. Were those pharmaceuticals or more like cannabis and psychedelics or things of oh, that nature? Oh yeah, cannabis off and on most of my life, but you know, cannabis I could pick up, I could put down, uh, cocaine didn't do anything. Psychedelics I tried in college. Again, alcohol never did anything for me. I just always tried things just because I was always interested in them. And none of them stuck. But then I, you know, we came across some samples of Vicodin in medical school. Me and um, a friend who was um, another medical student and just tried it. And again, it just took over. She tried it and uh, my friend and she said, wow, that was really fun. And then she had no desire to, to do it again, whereas something switched in my brain and I literally became like a Vicodin seeking machine for the next 10 years, which isn't to say that I didn't do a good job in medical school. I graduated at the top of my class and I still took good care of people, but slowly and insidiously, I went from, um, you know, taking it now and then to taking it almost every day, to needing to take it over the next 10 years, to feeling really, really sick if I didn't take it. I was very good at hiding this. Uh, and people were absolutely shocked in 2005 when the state police and the DEA raided my office for some bad prescriptions that I wrote, which is where my memoir, Free Refills, uh, I called it Free Refills because doctors have such stress and such access to medications that it's really a perfect storm. We basically have free refills to, to narcotics um, with the prescriptions and the samples and so forth. Um, people were so shocked that I was addicted because I was really good at hiding it. But um, it was just tragic all around. And it was really downhill from there. I lost my medical license for three and a half years and um, was on probation because I had three felony uh, counts of writing uh, fraudulent prescriptions, and I had to go away to rehab for 90 days, which is a really big deal when you have little kids. I had a five-year-old and a six-year-old at home, and I had to go away, and my marriage broke up. So it just was a very uh, painful and ugly time. But you know, I was able to turn things around, and I would say eventually turn uh, you know lemons into lemonade because I've been able to help people. Um, sorry, my dog is barking. Parking. I will change rooms here. Um, so it really, uh, it's been a long journey, but it's gone from a downhill journey to an uphill journey. And I've really enjoyed helping people, um, especially physicians who have suffered from addiction. And when did you f feel like you had a problem or did you feel like it at all before, you know, you were caught and had to confront everything the way you did? Well, part of the problem with physicians is that there's this whole culture of physician heal thyself. And there's such a, such a sort of narcissism and arrogance involved. So it never really occurred to me that I had a problem that I couldn't fix. 
And, you know, part of addiction and recovery is very humbling, which is part of what's great about it. You know, doctors who are in recovery tend to be great doctors. They actually listen to people and they're down to earth and they're present. But in my addicted state, I was just this sort of like self-centered person who thought I could like fool everybody. And you tend to do a lot of denial and rationalization. You know, other people have a drink after work. I don't drink. What's the difference if I use a different substance? You know, and it just gets so distorted, your thinking. I mean, I was literally snorting 12 oxycodone at night that I would crush up. I really didn't think I had a problem. And I also, to the extent that I knew I had a problem, thought that I was clever enough to like keep everybody guessing and keep fooling everybody. So I never really got help. And to the extent that I did, you know, my wife sort of was on my case and forced me to very superficial because I just had no interest in actually getting help. Well, you, as I mentioned earlier, you come from a distinguished medical family. Your father, Lester Grinspoon, was a, a, a noted doctor as well We're at Harvard Medical School. He re- had a journal that he edited, and he was super prominent in his field. And did he know? Was he wise to any of this? Or and. It, Oh, no, he didn't. Uh, Family members tend to be in denial. And also, you know, again, I was really good at hiding it. Uh, He was like incredibly supportive and empathic the whole time when I did become addictive. He couldn't have been more helpful and supportive. But at the time, he had no idea because, again, I was was very good at hiding it. And the signs of addiction can be very subtle. You know, I mean, when I was a medical student and when I was a resident, you know, my eyes were red. I'd look half dead. I'd be exhausted, um, partially because I was using drugs, opiates, but partially because I was a resident. And, you know, it's not that indistinguishable from like what an average resident looks like when they're working 36-hour shifts. Ironically, I think it was easier to hide because I was working all the time and people had were sort of expecting me to be half dead. So, you know, you, can pop, you were doing better than expected. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I first noticed your Instagram, which is how I first, you know, came to, when you first came to my attention, immediately the name Grinspoon rang a bell and I wasn't quite sure why, but I knew it was a really important name in my mind and I started looking into it. And when I realized it was, uh, you know, Lester Grinspoon was someone who had uh, written that book, Marijuana Reconsidered, right, way back in the 70s. That was a very important book for a lot of people like myself because it was the first time that marijuana was validated as uh, something that wasn't a dangerous drug. And it created a huge stir. I imagine it was a bestseller in its day. It probably, maybe it still is. And you know, so trying to imagine you growing up in a home like that, where you, was that something that you smoked at home? You know, and today you're a cannabis advocate, I should add. So it's sort of the circle has come full circle again. How, how did you reconnect with cannabis and why did you take such an important position in, in terms of being an advocate for it? Well, I have been involved in the cannabis issue my whole life. My dad was a and is a very famous cannabis advocate. And, you know, people in my living room growing up, like all the, they're either cannabis advocates or cannabis opponents in my living room, either like peaceably sharing joints or yelling at each other pro or against legalization literally throughout my whole childhood, including some very interesting luminaries like Allen Ginsberg and Carl Sagan 
And I got exposed to a lot of very interesting, inspiring thoughts growing up, which I'm very grateful for. My dad felt very strongly that cannabis should be regulated like alcohol. So people shouldn't smoke it till 18, because that was the drinking age back then. Uh, then it became 21 when the drinking age became for alcohol became 21. Now, like all rebellious children, we ignored completely what he <laughs> said. And so as teenagers, we smoked. But again, I never used cannabis addictively. I never had any problems with it or with any other drug. I'm like a super focused student and a high achiever. I never got into any trouble with any substance until I tried that Vicodin in medical school, which was in my mid to late 20s. So um, cannabis was always something to me that I actually thought was kind of a performance enhancer. It, it helped my writing and wakes me up and makes me sort of super motivated. I know it has different effects on different people, or at least it did back then when I when I tended to use it. So I didn't think cannabis was at all problematic. I do find it very helpful medically for my patients, especially for chronic pain. I think it's crazy that we load people up on opiates. And even I'm starting to believe non-steroidals, which, you know, kill 10,000 people a year and cause heart attacks and ulcers. And I'm seeing so many people whose kidneys are failing from using uh, non-steroidals year after year after year, when I truly am becoming to believe that low dose of chronic, low dose of medical cannabis, and the doses don't need to be very high to help with most types of pain. You know, we're not talking about a veteran with a, you know, grotesque injury. We're talking about Americans who are getting older and a little more rotund and having some arthritic pain. I'm starting to think that the medical cannabis is a much safer alternative than even the non-steroidals and certainly the opiates. So I've been very interested in a long time in using medical cannabis in my medical practice. Now, of course, this has been influenced by my dad's advocacy. And, you know, I start, went to medical school from 1993 to 1997. And my dad's second famous book called Marijuana, the Forbidden Medicine, which is a brilliant book, uh, came out right in 1993. So, you know, I have obviously been interested in his advocacy, but about uh, influence, but I've also been influenced by just a lot of success I've had with patients. I've gotten so many patients off opiates and I've gotten so many patients off benzodiazepines. And instead of starting people on, for example, Ambien for sleep, I'll start them on just a couple of drops of mostly CBD with a little bit of THC in it. And they're just like peacefully sleep and they won't have to deal with, um, you know, all the side effects of Ambien. So I think it's very effective for quite a few medical conditions, even though the, the uh, quote unquote rigorous scientific evidence is still lagging because the government makes it so hard to do research. So I have been very influenced by him, but I also am influenced by the success I'm seeing in clinic. The whole uh, medical world is, is in a turmoil at this stage, right? You have medical marijuana in some states, yet everyone is you know, still confused about what kind of studies they have. Is this thing validated? Is it not validated? Uh, I imagine it's it's difficult to be a doctor in this times because, uh, you know, you, you go to your conferences, you meet, you know, average doctors. Do you find a lot of resistance to your th ideas? Well, less and less. It's really interesting. 94% of patients are in favor of legal access to medical cannabis. And the patients 
like just didn't drink the Kool-Aid that cannabis is this evil substance that doesn't work. I mean, it never stopped being a medicine. It was a very popular medicine at the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s until our government decided to make it not a medicine. And the people that were clamoring most loudly against making it illegal were the American Medical Association. The doctors were using it in the 1920s and the 1930s. There were hundreds of scientific papers back then. So the doctors used to be huge advocates of medical marijuana. My dad actually documents this very well in both of his books. The doctors were under a lot of pressure from the government to kind of uh, not talk about the benefits and rather to spout government propaganda against cannabis. The doctors in this country haven't exactly been profiles in courage uh, when it comes to cannabis. And it's actually really funny. You mentioned my dad's book, uh, Marijuana Reconsidered, which came out in 1971. He made an airtight case that the magazine Playboy in 1969, which used to have really good journalism, actually, was much more accurate in terms of its reporting on cannabis than the Journal of the American Medical Association, which literally was just spouting government propaganda and all these mistruths about cannabis. So the medical community has just not been very helpful. And they've been very slow to switch from sort of autopilot, war on drugs, government propaganda mode into sort of the more modern approach to cannabis, which is understanding that it has a lot of benefits and that the harms have been vastly exaggerated. Now, in Canada, in Israel, in Europe, they're way ahead of us. And, you know, in Israel, they're, they're just like patenting things and doing studies and uh, doing all the things we should be doing. So we're just losing a lot of ground. But the reason that doctors are under a lot of stress is that the patients have not drugged this Kool-Aid. And the patients are like, we want information and we want access. And then the doctors are flat-footed because they haven't been educated about it. I mean, the stuff we learned in medical school was just nonsense. For a while, the doctors could get away with the party line, which was, this is very dangerous narcotic with no medical benefits. But now nobody believes that anymore. So the doctors are in a position of needing to re-educate themselves completely about cannabis. So it's a really interesting time. People are realizing that there's just been this like 80-year block on the research and this 80-year sort of propaganda campaign, like most of which isn't true. Uh, and there are cracks in the facade. Patients are all for it. State by state, the illegality and the criminalization is falling away. And the doctors have to scramble to try to become educated about it. And what about, uh, you know, beyond that, because yes, that's, there's the cannabis issue, but just overall, doctors with regard to plant-based medicine of any kind, herbal medicine, uh, natural medicine, that there's a, a huge resistance. And in many cases, they don't have any knowledge of that at all with regard to whatever their common complaints may be of the individual. So they could never prescribe or you know, recommend an herbal tea or whatever other products that are available. Oh, absolutely. And patients are using this stuff. So if the doctors are super dismissive and don't know anything about it, the patients aren't going to stop using it. They're just going to find other sources of information and not tell the doctors about it, which I don't think is helpful at all. For example, I wrote an article for Harvard Health about Kratom. Tons of people, millions of people use Kratom in this country for chronic pain and for opiate 
uh, withdrawal. Right. Yeah. And I was going to ask the about the problem that. with freedom is that it's not regulated and it's not studied. And the DEA keeps threatening to make it illegal. If you make I mean, it's illegal in some states and not in others, but if you just make it illegal, people are still going to be using it. It's just going to be a more dangerous supply. And it's going to be even harder to study. I think we should regulate it and study it and educate people about it. So I agree with you. I, I, I just don't think prohibiting things works at all. I think we need to um, study them and regulate them. So if people are going to use them anyways, they should be regulated so people know what they're taking. I think we make it so much more dangerous when we make them illegal and just pretend that by making them illegal, nobody's going to use them. I, I, I don't think making things illegal is particularly effective. It makes the criminals rich. It makes law enforcement rich. It makes the supply really dangerous. And it makes it so that people don't talk to their doctors and don't get help and they end up in the emergency room. That's another subject I wanted to talk about, which is advice to patients, because, you know, you go in to see your doctor for whatever situation, they start asking you questions. Do you smoke? And then you always go, well, I, you know, I don't smoke cigarettes, but, uh, you know, I smoke cannabis, but should I tell them, you know, there's a history, I don't think it's so prevalent today, but I was speaking to somebody else uh, from Northern California. There was a time when, you know, they would interview the children in school and about their parents' lifestyle and ask them if they had cannabis at home. And then if the kids said yes, they would be in danger of losing their kids Right. Would be taken exactly. away. Yeah. People's homes were taken away. That whole idea of like giving not information out, and especially let's say in a place like New York where it's still illegal uh, for the most part, or you know whatever other state that applies. Idaho, yeah. Yeah. So how 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 are patients supposed to manage that information flow with their doctors? Because you don't know what the doctors think. It's really interesting too because whenever a state goes from illegal to legal, there's always a study a year or two later and the prohibitionists or the like conservative doctors are always say, aha, emergency room visits for cannabis are up. And, you know, the question is, are the emergency room visits up or are people actually saying why they're in the emergency room? It's like, if you're in the emergency room and you admit that you're there because you smoked a little bit too much cannabis and you're anxious, um, before it was legal, you might lose your kids. After it was legal, nothing bad happened. So, of course, you're going to be more likely to say, I'm here because I smoked too much cannabis and I'm feeling anxious. So, it appears like the emergency room visits have mm -hmm. gone up. But I'm skeptical if the actual emergency room visits have gone up. Or if people are actually just saying, I'm here because of cannabis, because they're not going to lose their kids. DSS isn't going to get involved. The police aren't going to be called. So it's this artifactual increase in, well, it appears like an increase in emergency room visits. But I think it's just as easily explained by exactly what you're talking about, which is that if you take away this like incredibly negative consequence and the stigma, people are just more likely to tell the truth about why they're in the emergency room, which of course is a much safer and much healthier situation. The doctor's trying to treat someone for anything and the patient's lying about why they're there. The doctor's not going to get anywhere. What about just even before the emergency room, just a regular visit for, you know, you're going to take some procedure or just general health checkup where the doctors ask these questions. 
Um, you know, and, and most people like, you know how it is before, when you go in front of your doctor, suddenly you feel better. There's nothing wrong. And you try to, you know, oh, I work out three times a week. Whereas maybe you work out one time, you know, you try to present a better image to the doctor. Oh, yeah. No, of course. Or these psychiatrists go, you don't smoke marijuana, do you? <laughs> it's like, no, of course not, doctor. I'd never do that. And, you know, I, I, I just think if we take the stigma away and if we're less judgmental and less sort of snooty and condescending, we get much better communication with our patients. So is there a lot of work going on with doctors to in forums and conferences and uh, to educate them on this? And do you find that they have an open mind to it? Yes and yes. There are some doctors that are much groups of doctors that are much more open than others. Like the oncologists are all for it because all their patients are asking for it and they see firsthand how it helps people. I mean, if there's ever an indication that, you know, is like non-controversial, it's to assist in chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. Right. And virtually everybody asks their oncologist about it. And the oncologists are very hungry for information. And they're, you know, their patients are ill and either dying or suffering. So the oncologists are, are desperate for information about it and very open to it. Um, I think the addiction psychiatrists have been much more resistant. In their newsletters, they don't have anything, at least in the American Society of Addiction Medicine, right? get their newsletter, they never have anything positive about cannabis. Like there'll be a study that shows that like, you know, opiate prescriptions go down 7% in or so forth in states that legalize medical cannabis. That will never show up in the American Society of Addiction Medicine. The only thing that'll show up will be the negative studies. Why is that, do you think? Well, I don't know if it's just like they've, there's just a cultural bias against it or if it's because they make a lot of money treating quote unquote cannabis addiction or if they brainwash themselves or if it's just some institutions are slower to change than others or if the leadership is a lot slower to change than the members. Because I certainly know many members of the American Society of Addiction Medicine that are very progressive, enlightened and open-minded about cannabis. And they understand that it's a, phenomenal harm reduction tool. Use it for people in chronic pain. Instead of opiates, you'll have less opiate addiction. People don't die from cannabis, even if they get dependent on it. You know, they get addicted, but even if you get dependent on it, you're not going to overdose and die. If you treat someone for pain with cannabis instead of oxycodone, that's a huge plus. And you could use cannabis for withdrawal symptoms if someone's struggling with opiate addiction. I wouldn't use it for like medication-assisted treatment because there's not evidence yet that cannabis prevents overdoses like Suboxone or Methadone, but certainly for withdrawal symptoms and for pain instead of opiates. So there's certainly plenty of addiction providers that understand the vast potential that cannabis has. Another example would be that most internists or many internists are very progressive about cannabis. The primary care doctors are seeing it in their practice. They're seeing how it helps people. They're seeing how people are using it instead of opiates, instead of Ambien, instead of a whole variety of other medications that are much more dangerous, instead of benzodiazepines. But the leadership is so conservative. Like the American Medical Association has barely budged on this since like the drug war heyday of the 1950s. 
And I just don't know if like it's because of the big pharma influence for the American Medical Association or if the leadership just becomes so ossified they can't evolve their positions or what the problem is. But certainly the leadership of these groups is way behind the members. But if you were to look at the medical societies, if you were just to look at the medical societies, you'd think that like very few people were interested. They're so out of touch. It's just amazing. You mentioned cannabis addiction. What would that look like? I think it's more of a dependence. You know, again, I've been addicted. And when you're addicted, it just takes over all of your thoughts and it hijacks your brain and it supplants more and more, increasingly supplants everything else in your life. And I've definitely seen people smoke all the time and start to smoke all the time instead of doing other things. But you don't see people like breaking into stores to steal cannabis or necessarily stealing money to feed their habit. It, it seems more like a dependence, a heavy dependence that sort of displaces other things in their lives more than like a true severe addiction that is full of like compulsive behavior. I honestly think it's about as addictive as, as coffee, which isn't to say it's not addictive. Coffee's very addictive. People get really grumpy and unhappy about their coffee. So coffee is an extremely big part of many people's lives. And I think cannabis can, in the same way, be about as addictive as coffee. But to you can't really use it in the same sentence as alcohol, opiates, or tobacco. It's a different realm. But I can certainly envision some people, because of the way their brains are constituted, getting particularly euphoric from cannabis and being more vulnerable to getting actually addicted to it. So I do think people can get addicted to it, but I also think that's been a big sort of propaganda point that's been exaggerated in the war on drugs. And I think it's really, doctors have a really strong obligation to not exaggerate and not repeat government propaganda points. And I just think we have done an awful job of that. And I think we should really basically start from scratch, throw out everything we've learned, throw out everything. I mean, again, in the studies, all that's been funded have been studies by our government into the harms. Our governments refused to study anything related to the benefits of cannabis over the last 70 years. So is that really science? If you're not saying, is cannabis harmful, but no. you're saying, let's prove the cannabis is harmful. I mean, it's the whole science has been sort of corrupt. Well, we know so, that, yeah, because they've thrown out studies that have shown that it's not harmful. It's, you know, it's sort of totally right, exactly. rejected it. So that's... So I think we should sort of start from scratch and just say, we screwed up. The doctors were wimps and cowards. We followed the government. We didn't do the right thing. Not to blame anybody in particular. There's a lot of pressure, whatever. I, there are a couple of people I'd blame, but we don't have to get into that. But generally speaking, your average doctor just doesn't want to get in trouble or make waves. But we should just start from scratch and say, what do we know? A lot of our research has just been corrupted because we've ideologues have been in charge of it. What is, is What can we learn from Israel? What can we learn from Canada? What can we learn from countries that are more neutrally and objectively studying this? And let's just let's have like a committee of like neutral people, not advocates and not drug warriors, but um, people that are just somehow neutral look right. into it and just come up with like a new common ground on cannabis and start from there. 
we need to discard a lot of the stuff we have. It's baggage that's been sort of tainted. Psychiatry and psychedelics, how do you feel about it? Oh, I thought about it a ton because my dad in his book in 1979, Psychedelic Drugs Reconsidered, was calling to get psychedelics out of the street and into the lab. So my father was wrote two books about this. And he, about 50, well, 45 years ago, was calling for this. So I hate, hate to you know, boast about him, but he's 91 now and not doing so great. But he literally in 1979 was saying, these drugs have tremendous psychiatric benefits. Let's get into the lab and start studying them. So I, again, throughout my childhood, I it was hammered over my head how important psychedelics were for psychiatry. So I was brought up with that. Well, Harvard was like the center of that at that time. Right, but unfortunately, it was Timothy Leary that sort of made a, kind <laughs> a mockery. Of mockery of the whole thing. Well, so, but he still made the, got the story out. But, you know, there's somebody I know who actually is going to be um, on, on a podcast of mine, subsequent podcast, an artist called Swoon. And she talked about her experience, both trauma and psychedelics and under the supervision of a doctor. Uh, but it has to all be very underground because it's still technically illegal. So, you know, a lot of people who can be helped in this way are not, it's not really accessible to them. And, they, you know, even the ayahuasca, which has become so popular. And if somebody wants to find somebody qualified to work with, they have to go through, you know, underground friends of friends and whatever and get somebody recommended and then they try it. So it, you know, it makes it really difficult. Well, it's slowly becoming less underground. Uh, the government's becoming less hostile to it. Um, there's a group MAPS. Are you familiar with the group MAPS? Yes, MAPS? I am. Yes. Great, uh, great organization. Goblin. He was yeah. at my childhood home a bunch of times visiting my dad. So I got to meet him. And people are slowly advocating for it and getting it out of the shadows. But you're absolutely right. Ketamine is now approved for treatment refractory depression. So we're getting there. It's much more slow, happening much more slowly than we wish it were. But I think there's been a lot more press about it, many more articles. And I think the government's a lot less antagonistic. I mean, 10 years ago, I mean, 15 years ago, we, we were getting nowhere. So I think we're making progress. But I'm a huge advocate of that. Now, in my past, I just did psychedelics recreationally. So I can't say that I was ever doing any kind of research, but, um, and I haven't done any psychedelics probably in like 15 years, but I absolutely can see, for example, something like ecstasy, which I only tried once being like profoundly helpful for, um, PTSD or for depression, because the insights you get actually do last. They don't just evaporate the minute the drug goes away. Right. That's what, um, my guest was saying that psychedelics actually open doors and help you go through this as opposed to, you know, opiates and that actually close doors and uh, prevent you from finding anything out, exploring anything. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Did you think that the psychiatric profession is more open to these kinds of explorations? <laughs> the, there are younger progressive psychiatrists that are very open to this and interested in this. You know, when I think of like, professions that are cutting edge and open to progressive drug policy. Uh, psychiatry is not the first profession that comes to mind. A lot of the reefer madness I deal with comes from the psychiatrist. So I might be a little bit biased. And I have a lot of friends that are psychiatrists that are very progressive, 
both on psychedelics and on cannabis. So it's not fair to generalize, but I would say generally the younger the psychiatrist, the more likely they are to be progressive about this because they spent less of their lives being exposed to like, this is your brain on drugs. Drugs are evil. Drugs are this, drugs are that. And they've spent more of their time than the modern enlightened world where there's like a more sophisticated dialogue about drugs where we just haven't had this monotonic government propaganda stream about how bad they are. Well, it's even more than that it, because now we actually can watch the brain on drugs. We can actually see. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Which has, is a fairly recent thing. So we're actually now being able to make, you know, definitive statements about the effects of the cannabinoids and how it works and how it, uh, you know, works on pain and uh, the different way it right. affects. And the- there are other, other countries where they're doing research and we've access to that, those results. So it's not like the U.S. has a monopoly on everything. Right. Not far from it, especially when it comes to this. We've spent, you know, billions of dollars trying to convince everyone it was a bad thing and, uh, you know, help with the stigmatization uh, that exists on, you know, for people who have been doing this for years and hiding out, you know, somewhere in, in, in know, Mexico. Yeah, in Mexico <laughs> or in their garage or not even, uh, you know, be able to do it in their home because they're afraid their kids are going to get taken away or, you know, any kind of version of that. So, yeah, so we're at a good time in that respect. Um, you know, before, I know you also worked at Greenpeace for, for a period of time. Does there a connection between cannabis and Greenpeace or sort of cannabis and, and, you know, the earth or self-preservation, the whole idea of the plant. We know, you know, that people are go out very far these days with making claims about, you know, cannabis can cure cancer. Cannabis can save the world because of, you know, it's hemp and it's, and it's this and it's that. Well, it is very interesting to look at the industrial contribution to sort of, the forces that made cannabis illegal and a component of that was definitely the petrochemical industry. And, you know, who knows what an alternative history would look like. And, you know, you just wonder because if we could have made fuel from hemp, I mean, it's just hard to say like things right now are so drastic. The, Bulletin of Atomic Scientists just put the doomsday clock at 100 seconds to midnight. What does that mean? Because of, oh, there's the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists has been tracking how close we are to like blowing ourselves up for the last 70 years. And I think the closest we were was during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then we backed away for a long time when the Cold War, when the, um, when the Berlin Wall fell down. But now we've been like inching closer and closer and closer to midnight. And they just had an announcement yesterday about their doomsday clock. They're like this objective group of people that analyzes all uh, the risks to the world. And, you know, they're saying with like nuclear weapons and climate change and artificial intelligence and the erosion of science, uh, we're in a very precarious time right now. And they've, they're really um, saying that we're just in such a dangerous time at this moment now. And they, so they put their clock closer to midnight. Midnight means we're in big trouble. And I would just say that a big part of that is climate change. And you just wonder what would have happened if we'd used hemp-based fuels instead of carbon-based fuels. But that's getting very speculative for me. Right. Well, it's still something worth thinking about. And I appreciate very much your time, Peter, uh, sharing some of this experience with us. Well, really nice speaking with you as well. This is a great conversation. 
talk to you again sometime soon, I hope. Absolutely. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. Mm-hmm.